Romans 3, 21 through 31. It says, but now, Paul says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift that through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, Paul has already laid out the bad news that all are guilty before God because of sin. The word now here in verse 21 doesn't mean that something has changed. A lot of times people read now and then they act like things are different. And as you're going to see tonight, God's word has all along said that this gospel has been there from the beginning. The law and the prophets bear, bore witness to the gospel of salvation by faith alone and God's provision for man's sin. That's been there all along. So when Paul says, but now, you know, he's changing his argument. It, it means that he's now focusing and changing the direction of, the, of his argument from man's sin to God's provision for man's sin. And that's what we're going to take a look at tonight. Now, through Jesus' death, God's righteousness that we all need, remember all are guilty before God, Jew or Gentile, God's righteousness, though, has been manifested or made known apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, Righteousness, as he's saying, apart from the law, means that it's not by the law. You cannot be righteous by being good enough or by obeying God's law. You can't do it. It's impossible. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at some verses that the, from the Scripture that make this very, very clear. And I'm going to do it in such a way that hopefully you'll really get it. You say, well, Jim, we, we get it. No, we don't. And I'll explain that in a little bit. But go with me to Romans chapter 3 again. Look at verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Jump over to chapter 4, look at verses 13 through 15. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherence of the law, adherence of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So again, when he, he, he's tied into the argument of Abraham was considered righteous long before the law even came. Righteousness has always been given by God through faith, not from the law. Righteousness that's being manifested has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, it's not tied to how good you've been. Go to Galatians chapter 2. Look at one verse in Galatians 2 verse 16. Galatians 2, verse 16. It says, Yet we know 
that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. By the way, is it getting pretty clear yet? As we go to look at a bunch more, let me just ask you a quick question. What does most of the world think when it comes to whether or not they're going to get into heaven? They think they're good enough. They think they've been obedient enough to God's rules that he's going to let them in. Isn't that interesting how Satan has deceived everybody? No, although it's so clear that the scriptures have all along said no one will be declared righteous by being good enough. It's not possible. Go to Galatians chapter 3. Look at verses 10 and 11. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and so do them. Now, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. There it is again. Plus, he adds something else here. He said, If anybody, you want to be good enough to be good before God? The law actually says, if you're going to try to obey God's law to be good enough in his eyes and to be justified, the law says you have to keep it perfectly. So if you've already broken one, you can never go back and be good enough. You're already, I'm going to say it, damned. If you think you're going to be good enough on your own, you're not saved by works of the law. Go to Galatians chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 6. He even clarifies it even a little bit more here. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not subject or submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Here he even says this. If you guys think that you have to do stuff in order to be righteous before God, you've cut yourself off from Christ. And, and, and there was a group of people back in that day who were saying, okay, yeah, you can be saved because of believing in Jesus, but you also have to keep, God gave us his law and we have to obey the law and we have to keep the law and the law said circumcision. And there's even movements nowadays. I don't know if you all know this or not, but there are movements even in our area and there's big movements around the country of groups that still put people as Christians back under the law and they have to follow the Mosaic law and the, the dietary restrictions and, and all the these different things. They say that it's faith in Jesus, but you also have to do these things to be right before God. And there are whole movements. Paul clearly says, first off, you're going to try to be right before God by observing the law. You have to do it perfectly. And secondly, if you're going to go there and add anything to just faith alone in Christ, you've severed yourself from Christ. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verses 8 and 9. We know it well, but I want you to look at it again. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Go to Philippians chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 9. 
Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these th same things to you is of no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, look, if any of you want to still kind of play that, that game or go down that road of thinking you can be right before God, I challenge you to find anybody that did a better job on their own than I did. I mean, I followed the law like you wouldn't believe. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee. As it came to uh, uh, persecuting the church, I was one of the leaders. And not only that, if you want to go and look at how well I personally kept the law, find something that I did wrong. He wasn't perfect because no one is. But when he says I was blameless, what he was saying was, show me where I broke the law. Go ahead and accuse me of way, a way, one way that I broke the law. Oh, I did because it's a hard issue and it's not a keeping it that way. But he says, if anybody has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have the most. Yet, I've realized that you don't get saved that way. I throw it all away. I count it all as rubbish. I lost my position. I lost family. I lost all of that. I want, to, I want to know Christ and have a righteousness that doesn't come from me and do obedience to the law. Now, go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Isn't it interesting how often this truth is being hammered home? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Again, not because of us, but because of his grace. We'll deal with that a little bit more tonight, later on. Go to Titus chapter 3. Look at verses 4 through 7. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Has this same truth been repeated over and over and over in many different ways? You're not saved, and you're not considered righteous in God's eyes by anything you do. It's by faith in what Jesus has done. Now, let me just take a second here. 
and have you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 23 because we need to let this truth sink into our hearts. Jim, we're we're trusting in Jesus for our salvation. We're, We're not thinking we're going to heaven because we've been good enough. We believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead and we've put our faith in him. Oh, this doesn't really apply to us. Well, be careful. Because I'm going to show you that that wrong mindset of thinking you have to do things to make yourself right before God still creeps in, even for believers. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verses 1 through 23. The Hebrew writer says, For the, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. The law said to do it. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now, where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let that truth sink in now. Where there is forgiveness because of what Jesus has done, there's no longer any offering needed for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through the flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." I'm going to help you, hopefully, a little bit here. I'm going to ask you a show of hands. How many of you in here can look me in the eye and say, I'm going to heaven, not because of anything I've done, but because of faith alone in Jesus and what he's accomplished? Can you you do that? All right, now put your hands down. Of those of you that raised your hands, how many of you still sin? All right, hopefully you all raised your hand. We all still do. All right, now, how many of you have ever even though you know you're going to heaven because of faith in Jesus Christ and not anything you've done, and you've just acknowledged you sin, how many of you, when you sin, one of your first thoughts is, I need to do a couple of things to make it right? For honest, we all do. That's why David in Psalm 51, after he had sinned with Bathsheba, 
said what we see quoted here. You have no delight or desire for burnt offerings. Otherwise, I'd offer them. What you're looking for is what? A contrite heart, a broken spirit. I mean, broken, broken heart, a contrite spirit that you won't despise. That's not a, that's not a, um, that's not a something that we are craving to do. That's something that we should do, right? That, Go ahead. What, explain your question again, Dave. Okay. Remember when you, you said, uh, what was the last question that you had? Well, I mean, we think that there are some things we need to do to make it like, in other words, we, we, we fall into a mindset of thinking that right now God's upset with us and we have to do a couple of things. Uh, you know what, Lord, I'm going to stop doing that and I'm going to start doing the right things and I'm going to hopefully get your approval again. We definitely come to him, but listen closely, listen closely. Here's what we do. We don't come and say, I'll do some things to make it right. We come to him with an attitude that says, that's why I need Jesus. You understand? I'm glad you brought that up. It, we still come to him. That word, when, in 1 John chapter 1, where, verses 9 and following, where it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In that passage, it goes on and says, if we say we don't sin, we, the truth's not in us. And what he's saying is this, is to confess our sin is not for me to tell God that what I just did and hopefully, you know, he'll wash it clean. Actually, to confess is when the Holy Spirit convicts us and we agree with him. You're right. And, but we don't have to ask God to forgive me again. You are forgiven. You have been perfected for all time. There's no longer remembering sins. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now, we still sin. But what we do in those situations is we should come to him and say, when the Spirit convicts us, you're right. And I thank you that Jesus has covered that. We receive the forgiveness that is already ours. Jesus, and a lot of people don't realize this because they've been taught that in John 13, Jesus was teaching the disciples about service when he washed their feet. And he comes and he dresses himself as a slave and he starts washing their feet and they don't want him to do it. And he makes a very interesting statement. He says to Peter, he says, you don't know what I'm doing right now, but later you'll understand. Well, hang on for a second. If Jesus was teaching service, Peter knew what he was doing. But it wasn't about service. It was actually about sanctification. In that context of John 13, we don't have time to go into it. But if you go back and look, Jesus says, you're already clean. A man who's already had a bath doesn't need to have another bath. He just needs to have his feet washed. So Jesus was saying to Peter, I'm going to wash your feet. You've already had the bath. I'm just going to wash your feet. Prior to Peter denying the Lord. Was Jesus washing Peter's feet because Peter said, hey, I've sinned and I need you to wash my feet? No, Jesus was washing him before he even did it. Peter's confession is when he lets him do it. When we still sin, the Holy Spirit is not saying, God's upset with you right now, but as soon as you make things right, he's going to be okay. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit is the whole time saying, this isn't good for you. I don't want this for you. I hurt for you. I don't, it's going to hinder our fellowship, but it's not on my end. It's going to be on your end. And just receive the cleansing that has already been accomplished through Jesus Christ. We still sin, but hopefully through learning to let this truth sink into our hearts, we have been made right. There's nothing we need to do to make it ourselves right. We couldn't save ourselves. You can't keep yourself saved. It's a gift of God. 
Now, even though the law can't make us righteous, God's law and the prophets had borne witness to salvation being through faith in Jesus all along. Now, what I'm going to do now, go back to Romans 3, is I'm going to kind of spend a little bit of time dealing with this truth here. Look at Romans 3, verse 21 again. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. You're not made righteous by the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So I want to make sure you're with me here. Which, what bears witness to this righteousness by faith? The law and the prophets. All right. I'm going to show you something that's hopefully going to cause a question to come up in your mind. All right. So the law and the prophets have said this all along. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take you back through some scriptures to show you in the New Testament and in the Old Testament how the Bible had all along said that salvation is only by faith alone and God's provision for man's sin. That has been there all along. It's not new. Let's just chase this for a second. Do you all understand that Christianity, the root and the origins of Christianity can be traced all the way back to the beginning of time? It goes all the way back to the garden before there were even such a thing as Jews and Judaism. That you go back to the garden where God says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to Satan, a seed of the woman, a descendant of, of, of woman will defeat you. And the gospel began to be preached. And over time, there was more revelation. It's called progressive revelation. And in time, we find out that this seed of the woman is actually going to come through the lineage of David and his family. And, and then we find out a little bit later on that he's going to suffer. And, and all these different things are going to be revealed over time. And, and the Islam didn't even start until 600 years after the church age began. Judaism is not the origination of Christian faith. Christian faith's been there before Judaism. Judaism was just the next step in God's progressive plan to reveal what he'd already said from the beginning. I'm going to provide someone that's going to defeat Satan for you. And then he makes the nation of Israel. And he's going to come from that nation. And then he's going to come from a certain family in that nation. And all these things are revealed over time. In between the law was then added, and we'll get to that later on. So I want to just take you back. Go to Romans chapter 1. You might not have caught it in our beginning of our study of Romans. Look at verses 1 through 4 again. Paul starts off saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul said, I've been set apart to preach this gospel which was promised beforehand in the Old Testament through his prophets. Go to 1 Peter. Actually, now we'll go to John chapter 5 first. Go to John chapter 5. Look at verse 39. And by the way, when Jesus said this to the Jews, especially the Pharisees. What scriptures did they have? They just had the Old Testament. Yeah, they just had the Old Testament. Look at John chapter 5, verse 39. Look at what Jesus says to the Pharisees. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. They've been pointing to me all along. 
That's the whole thing. God, Jesus says, look, you guys think by reading the scriptures and trying to do what it says, you can be right before God. They've been pointing to me all along. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So when the prophets were writing these prophecies, they were saying, all right, Lord, who are you talking about? Who is this going to be? As the Spirit was having them write about this suffering servant and this one that was going to come, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? And they were told it's not for you to understand in your time, but it's to be revealed later on. You're actually being used to help people in the future as you write down what I've shared with you. The Lord just kind of showed me something kind of interesting. Just now, as I just read that, I didn't even see it last night. We've been given a responsibility in the church. Remember the book of Revelation was written to the church? But most of the book of Revelation is going to happen after we're gone. Isn't that interesting? But we've been given a responsibility like the Old Testament prophets to share with them what the scripture says so that if they're happening, happen to be alive at the time that the prophecies are being fulfilled, they'll understand we have a role just like them. And the book of Deuteronomy and Romans both talk about how God is going to use the church to make Israel jealous. And when he's done with the church... And raptures the church, he's going to pick back up with the nation of Israel. We've got a role too. But a lot of the prophecies aren't going to happen while we're here. Just like the prophets would say, when's this going to happen? How's this going to be? And he said, no, it's for a future time. A lot of things revealed to us that we're to share are for tribulation period and so on. Isn't that interesting? That's kind of cool. I thought about that just tonight. The Lord was like, get me preaching on something totally different. I can't do that because I don't want to preach like Burke's. I don't want to be that good. I don't want to be. Oh, wow. Look at that. Good point. Good point. I don't want to be that good. Go to Matthew chapter five. Go to Matthew chapter five. Look at verses 17 and 18. I aspire to be as good as Burke's one day. Of course, you notice I've not said a first name. <laughs> Matthew chapter five. Look at verses 17 and 18. And some people listening right now across the country are going, who's Burke's? He's sitting in the room. That's all you get. Matthew 5, 17 through 19. And if I was in Matthew instead of Mark, it would make more sense. There we go. Go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, look, I'm not coming to abolish what was written in the Old Testament. I'm coming to fulfill it all. 
There's a lot of people now that only read the New Testament. Folks, I cannot stress this to you enough. That's been one of the neat things about our Revelation book that people are saying is like, they're, they're writing us and saying, it's the first time I've understood Revelation. It's clear. I'm really loving it. And I've always, when I contact with them and they contact us and I respond, I say, listen, is it the first time you took it literally and had someone put it in order? And they're like, yeah. And I go, and you're also now realizing that over three quarters of the book of Revelation was already written in the Old Testament. All Revelation did was compile it and put it in order for us. Folks, let me say this to you. Jesus, I've said it before, in, in Luke 24, on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, that Sunday, he met with his disciples and he said, everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. There's a lot in the Old Testament. That's why the Jews, by the way, didn't understand about the suffering part and the dying on the cross and rise from the dead part. That was a smaller amount of prophecies compared to the many about his second coming and the millennial kingdom and all that. They got so focused on this guy that's going to come and they don't know who he was, but they do this guy was going to come be a descendant of David and he was going to rule and reign on the earth and the Jews are going to be the center of the world and they got so excited about those prophecies that they totally missed the other ones that showed he had to come and die first we have to understand we need to as believers spend time in the whole book read the old testament read the new testament it's all the same it's not well there's the old and there's the no it's all the same have you ever noticed that most of your quotes in the New Testament, tends you back to the Old Testament. Why? Listen, because this gospel of salvation by faith alone in God's provision for man's sin through the one that he has sent has been preached all along. Righteousness has never been by the law. The law and the prophets have been witnessed all along that this gospel that we understand through faith alone in Jesus Christ has been preached all along. Go to Isaiah 53. I wish I had the time tonight to take you to so many of the Old Testament passages that preach the gospel that we think is a New Testament thing, but it's been there all along. Let me just show you one here tonight. Go to Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll jump to verses 10 through 12. Isaiah 53, who has believed, listen closely, what he has heard from us? Did they hear? By the way, that's an easy question. Did they hear? Yes, they heard. He has heard what they, who has believed what they've heard. They may not have understood it. They may not have believed it, but they heard it. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, we don't know who this he is at this time, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He, we don't know who it was at this time that Isaiah wrote this, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from men who hide, whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jump over to verses uh, 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush this individual, to crush him. He has put him to grief. But when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Even though the prophecy said that he was going to die. Here it now says that he's going to rise from the dead. He's going to be alive again after he dies. 
The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Here in the Old Testament, we see clearly the prophecy said there was going to be this individual. That's why the Ethiopian eunuch sitting in the chariot we saw in Acts chapter 8, he, he tells Philip, he says, Who, who's Isaiah writing about himself or somebody else? But because of progressive revelation and being on that side of the cross, Philip could get up in the chariot and show him from the prophecies. It's been now fulfilled. Jesus is the answer to this. Oh, but what did this one that was prophesied to come do? He was pierced for our iniquities. He was put to death for our sins. Oh, but he's going to rise from the dead. And if anyone has faith in him, they'll be declared righteous. It's the gospel. By the way, let me chase something real quick. Look at verse five. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Unfortunately, a lot of people out there today try to take this verse and try to make it say that because Jesus was wounded and because he, he died, you now will never be sick. If you're sick, you, Jesus by Jesus' death, you can be healed. That's not what the passage is talking about, physical sickness. It's talking about spiritual sickness, and I can prove it to you from Scripture. Go to, um, go to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm sorry, chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Is it talking about physical or spiritual healing? It's spiritual healing. It's not physical. Paul had some kind of an ailment in his flesh some thorn in his flesh that he prayed three times that God would remove. And God says, nope, my grace will be sufficient for you. I'm going to leave. We don't know what his actual sickness or ailment was, but God said, I'm not going to take it away. Oh, but Jesus, you died so that I could be healed. No, that's spiritual. That's not physical. Now go to Galatians chapter three. Look at verses 15 through 22. Galatians 3, verse 15, Paul says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is who? Christ. This is what I mean. The law who, which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Again, the law and the prophets 
all have been pointing to the fact that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ or in God's provision for man's sin. The promised one from Genesis 3.15 who was more and more and more revealed is going to come from Jesse, going to come from David, is going to rule and reign, he's going to suffer, he's going to do all these things. All of those prophecies have been pointing to salvation being by faith alone in what he did. David himself even understood it when he said, if you want me to do something to sacrifice to make it right with you, I do it. But you don't desire sacrifice. What you want is a broken heart, a contrite heart, a broken spirit. I want you want Jesus comes on the scene, blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who are spiritually poor. And blessed are those who what? Mourn because of their condition. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. The gospel is not something new. It's been there all along. The law and the prophets have borne witness to it. Now, some of you might have had the question pop into your head, but you're afraid to ask it. You say, okay, Jim, you've been saying this over and over, and the scripture says it. The law and the prophets both bore witness to the fact that Jesus would be the sacrifice for our sins. And you've shown how the New Testament writers kept pointing back, saying the law and the prophets have borne witness to it. And you've even shown us some places where the prophets talked about it. But you didn't show us anywhere in the law that talked about salvation being by faith. Actually, it did. Remember how Jesus said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But these are the scriptures that talk about who? Me. Remember how we read in Hebrews chapter 10 how the law demanded that they do these sacrifices? The law said you have to do it on these days, at these times. If you commit this kind of sin, you must do this kind of a repentant sacrifice. What, what was the law? Who was the law pointing to all along? To Jesus. The law was showing you that the fact that it had to be done every year over and over and over, it couldn't have been cleansing you from your sins because we've got to do it again. Wouldn't it be neat if we just take one shower and be done? But one shower doesn't make me clean because I'm going to get dirty again. And you know what I'm saying? It was pointing to the fact that this isn't doing it. It's pointing to someone else. Also, it's also revealing to us we need a Savior. Because the more you tried to keep it, how'd you do? The more you failed, the more you realized, I can't do this. It was driving you to Christ. It was added after the promise, righteousness is by faith, after the promise, the law doesn't nullify that promise or that will, that testament that was made. But the law's purpose was to show us we can't keep it. To drive us to the promise. And to drive us to the promise. I love that. That's excellent, Glenn. Go to Romans chapter 7. Look at verses 7 through 13. He says, what shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, 
seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Is the law a bad thing? No, the law is still holy. The law is still good. But the law isn't going to help you. The whole attitude of if I just do what God wants, he'll be okay with me. If I just do what God wants, he'll be pleased with me. And that will make him like me more or consider me righteous in his eyes. That whole mindset should be blown up. Go with me to John chapter 6. Let me show you what I mean. John chapter 6, look at verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, we'll get into this more as we get further into Romans and Paul starts dealing with everyday life and how to walk in the spirit versus the flesh and all that. We're going to get into that more. But let me just say this to you. You have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. But you are also still being saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And one day you will be saved through faith in Jesus Christ when it all is culminated. You can't lose it. Once he's begun it, he finishes it. But this life of faith must continue every single day. Now, if it's real, it will. But don't think, I prayed a prayer, I trust in Jesus, I'm okay. No, God says, I still want you to faith me. I want you to still faith me on a daily basis. That's why in the book of Hebrews, at the beginning in chapter 1, he says, "Faith by faith, Abraham, sorry, back up, by faith, we know that the world was created through the word of God. In other words, faith can't begin until you know what God has said. Then he says, by faith, Abel was considered righteous because he offered a more perfect sacrifice. And what it was, was Abel put all his eggs in one basket. He, he took the best of what he had. He took the firstborn. He took the, his breeding stock and he offered it to God. Cain just offered some of what he had. But what God's showing us there is, is faith can't begin until you know what God said. Secondly, real faith has no parachute, no backup plan. You put all eggs in one basket. But then he says a third thing. And by faith, it says that all of a sudden Enoch walked with God and was commended as someone who pleased God. All we know about Enoch is what? He walked with God. If you go back and look up Enoch, he walked with God, says it twice. And then God took him because he was no more. And then all we know about Enoch in the New Testament is he what? He walked with God. Don't miss what the Hebrew writer is saying. You want to understand faith? Faith cannot begin until you know what God has said. I can't believe something so much I have faith that God's going to do this. No, no. Did he say it? You put faith in what he said. Secondly, when you put faith in what he said, you don't have a backup plan. 
You're going to just trust him fully. And thirdly, you got to keep doing it. One of the problems with a lot of Christians today is they put their faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation, but they don't know how to faith him on a daily basis, listening to what he's saying through his word, walking in obedience, trusting him, and believing that he will continue to what he's promised. And that's what we're going to get into more as we get into Romans. But go back to Romans chapter 3 again and look at what Paul says. We're only going to have time to look at two of these words. And hopefully it will hit them fast enough because I'm even behind schedule from last night. In Romans 3 verse 22, we've just seen how the law and the prophets have borne witness to this gospel and this righteousness. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What we're going to do is look at two of these phrases. We won't have time to get to the third. We didn't last night as well. We're going to look at this word justified and grace as a gift. We'll, next time when we come together in two weeks, we'll deal with re- redemption, and then we'll also get into that word propitiation, which we'll get to next time we meet. Paul goes on and says that even though all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, the good news is that we can be justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. That word justified is a legal term. It means to be declared righteous or declare righteous. We are declared righteous by God, by what we've done, because you prayed a prayer, because you walked an aisle, because you were baptized? No. He responds to faith, and he knows whether or not your faith is real, whether you've really trusted in him. But when he knows that your faith is real, he declares you righteous. Listen closely. Second Corinthians 5.21, and he made him, Jesus, to become sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus sin? Never. Well, how did he become sin then? How did Jesus become sin? God put the sin of the world on him. The the Bible term or the, the, the theological term is he imputed it to him. He took man's sin and put it on Jesus and he became sin. He didn't do anything to sin. He just became sin. So much so that he was separated from the Father and on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the separation from the Father, which blows my head. I don't know how God can separate himself from himself, but the Bible says he did, and he became sin even though he never sinned. So that we might become the righteousness of Christ. How are you and I righteous? But not just through Jesus, Through God taking the righteousness of Christ and imputing it to us, we are justified, declared righteous, not because of anything we've done. We don't have any righteousness to bring to the table. We're righteous. Do you believe that Jesus became sin even though he never sinned? Then do you believe that you are that righteous in the eyes of God? That's where we have trouble. We're going to get into that later on. But the Bible says it's true. You are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That's why we have peace with God. Go to Romans 5 real quick. You're in Romans 3. Go to Romans 5. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, declared righteous, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Go back to Isaiah 53. 
I'm meditating on something that we're, I'm going to have hopefully understood a little bit more by the time we get to it in, later on in Romans. But I heard a preacher yesterday on the radio talking about how uh, we were slaves to sin. Now we're slaves to righteousness. The, I've understood the slaves to sin thing. The slaves to righteousness is really starting to ruminate in my heart. I'm meditating on it. It's kind of exciting. I'm a slave to righteousness. In other words, I have no choice but to be righteous. Oh, I still sin. But you know what? The moment I do, I don't like it. You know why? Because I'm a new creation and I'm actually a slave to righteousness. My real master is righteousness. And that's why when I sin, I don't want to stay there long. You're happy in sin? You might want to check whether or not you're a slave to righteousness. But those of us who are slaves to righteousness, and I'll get to that more, we can't help but want to be righteous. That's kind of cool. But look at Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? Brought us peace. We're at peace with God. You're declared righteous. If you've been justified by faith in Christ, God, you're, God's at peace with you. You're at peace with God. He's got no issue with you. Oh, is he still working on us? Of course. Does he love us? Without question. And even though he knows we still struggle with sin, he sees the finished product because we have been declared righteous. You've heard me say this before, but I love it. How Jesus, when he points out that Peter's going to deny him, says, I tell you, Peter, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny you know me three times. Calls him by his new name and says, I see the finished product. Even though you may not look like righteousness for a few days, I know the finished product. And folks, if we allow this truth to sink into our hearts, all of a sudden we'll stop trying to be good enough before God. We'll start to rest in that and we start to live in the freedom that we've been given. And all of a sudden it goes less about the rules and obedience to the law and all that stuff and more about just walking in Christ. Let's also deal in the time we have left with the term gift of grace. Salvation is a gift, it's a gift. Again, nothing you earn. Go to Romans 3, look at verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Let me read it to you again. What becomes of our boasting now? If we're justified by God and we're declared righteous by God, do we have anything to boast about? No. Paul says, I don't have anything to boast about except the cross of Christ. One thing I can brag about is Jesus died and took care of me. That's where all my, my confidence is in. But, you know, as I've shared with you before, as I travel around and I talk to people around the country, and I deal mostly with people in churches. I'm not going to say Christians because not just because you're, you're in church, that means you're a Christian. But I'll talk to them and say, people, if you died today, would you go to heaven? And you'd be amazed how many church members say, I hope so. Or they'll say, I think so, and I'll say, how do you think so? And they'll say, because I believe in Jesus, and I've tried to live a good life. Hmm. Folks, if you add anything to it, it's faith alone. That's the only way you're saved. Not by any of our works. Let that truth sink in. Yeah, but Jim, don't you think? Oh, we'll deal with all that later on. 
But let me just say this to you, and I'm realizing this more and more as I walk with him and the more the word of God begins to sink into my heart. If you're truly saved, all the yeah, but what abouts go away when you let the truth of what you have, who you are in Christ sink in. The yeah, what abouts become foolish questions. But we still spend too much time saying, well, don't preach on grace. People will abuse it. No, it's a gift. By the way, if it's a gift, that means it can be abused. Or else it wouldn't be grace, right? But don't worry. God knows that. And he also knows if you're really his, you're a slave to righteousness and you really won't stay there very long abusing it. Man, I want to chase something so bad, but we don't have time. Go to Romans 4. Look at verses 1 through 8. Romans 4, verses 1 through 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Here's what it says, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was declared righteous. Let me just stop for a second. How many of you, show of hands, have ever had a bellyache about the fact that the book of Jude declares Lot righteous? Righteous Lot was grieved by what he saw. Anybody else had a bellyache about that like I have over the years? I mean, have you looked at Lot's life? I mean, do you realize the Moabites and the Ammonites came from Lot when he got drunk and slept with his daughters? But he was declared righteous. Not tied to how good we are. David, man after God's own heart. He did some stuff that wouldn't let him serve in our churches anymore. For what does the scripture say? Verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who doesn't work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will, will not count his sin. Isn't that cool? Thank you, Lord. That's it. You get it. Go to Romans 5. Look at verses 20 and 21. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, because remember, it fuels sin. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through faith, sorry, through righteousness, like leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Anybody ever heard anybody say, yeah, but you don't know how bad I've sinned. You don't know all the things I've done. There's no such thing that you can do that his grace won't cover except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is when the Spirit calls you to salvation and you reject it. That's, that's the only sin not covered. His grace is enough to cover all of it. Go to Ephesians, well, we, we know Ephesians 2, 8, 9 again. We, you, you know that one. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is the what? It's a gift of God. It's simply a gift. Go to Titus chapter 3. Verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Write this down, look at it later on. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I don't have time to have you read that one. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. I'll close with this. This is why Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23 say this. Jesus said, Not everyone who says Lord or calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only him who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. And many will say to me on that day of judgment, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? And I will say to you, to them, Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you. Let me say something to you. <clears throat> this will never happen because of my faith in Jesus Christ. But if I were to stand before God and he says, you're not in. My response would be, not be, but Lord, I preached. Lord, I taught. My response would be, but I did what you said. I put faith in Jesus Christ. Your word said that if I believed in Jesus, that I would have eternal life. I put all my eggs in one basket. That's what you said to do. The work of God is to believe in the one that, you, that he sent. I've done what you said to do. That would be my answer if God were to say to me, you're not in. He's not gonna, I'm not going to worry about that. He's already confirmed in my spirit that I'm his. But these people, when they were told you're not in, they're going to respond, but we did stuff. Their faith was in what? Themselves and their works. I love you. Two weeks from now, we'll deal with redemption. It's a slave term. I can't wait. Redeeming of a slave. And we'll also deal with that big word, propitiation. We'll see you then.